Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey guys, man, check this thing out. This is awesome. Um, Hey, I'm pumped to be with you. If you're new to Mercy Church, my name's Spence. I'm the lead pastor. I'm gonna lean on this thing real hard. This is gonna be great. Uh, Lead pastor here at Mercy Church. If you're joining us there in Providence Road or Union County, one church meets in three locations. I'm here this morning celebrating our risen savior with our Mercy Northeast campus. Love you guys. Glad to be here this morning. Got a big old hug from William right when I walked in, man. That is, I'm at church now. This is good. Uh, here's the deal. We are, as a church, in a series of sermons uh, that's called It's Hard to Believe. We're trying to be honest about the reality of doubt that exists in our minds and hearts when it comes to the Christian faith. So to do that, we're addressing six common objections or questions that friends, family, neighbors, that they might have about Christianity. And if we're honest, most of us have some of these same questions too, right? So if you're new with us, welcome. This is a good time for you to come in and investigate the faith with us. In fact, I'll say if you're new with us, right after service, we have something we call starting point, just a short kind of get to know you and you stick around and the leaders of our church will spend some time just sharing, maybe 15, 20 minutes, just sharing a little bit about what we are all about. All right, I invite you to stick around for that. I will say our sermon today and during this series It's kind of a little bit different than normal. Normally, what we do is we take just a passage of scripture and we just kind of walk our way through it. And that's actually what we were doing in the book of Ephesians. We paused that series. And as soon as these six weeks finish, we're right back into Ephesians doing that. But this is more like, let's see what the whole Bible has to say about this particular subject, all right? So today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about the biggest one, the biggest objection, statistically, the most common objection. A Barna group study that came out earlier this year, surveyed U.S. adults, and the number one reason people give for doubting Christianity is past experiences with religious institutions. And then, coming in at a close second, the hypocrisy of religious people. So y'all, this is a big one. It's hard, our series is themed, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe the gospel when it seems like the church is responsible for so much injustice in the world. In other words, it's hard to believe what the church says because of what you've seen the church do. In short, today we're going to talk about church hurt. And that's a tall order for a single sermon. Because, look, this idea is both a head thing and a heart thing, kind of depending on who you are. For some, it's more of a rational objection. And you think to like moments in history like the Christian Crusades or Christian involvement in the slave trade. Or maybe just think about this guy on campus with a sandwich board walking around yelling about who all God hates, right? And you're like, I don't know if Christianity is true, but I look at all that and I think it's not good. So regardless of whether it's true, it's not good. So I'm not interested. Fair enough. We will talk about that. But then there's others of you that this is more of a hard thing, especially in the Bible Belt. This gets way more personal. And if it's not you that has some kind of experience, some kind of church disappointment or hurt, 
statistics would say it's probably one of your friends or a classmate or a coworker or a neighbor, somebody close to you. In fact, that's my reality. I was, what I would say, definitely disappointed, kind of hurt by the church growing up. Um, it was, what happened in my situation was kind of crazy too, and I share it. Um, I've shared it a couple of times. I'll share it with you now. The way it happened for me was I saw a church, our church split Sunday morning at 1130, okay? So the pastor's up there preaching at a pulpit nowhere near as sturdy as this guy, but he's up there and he's doing his thing. And it's 1130, okay? So we're in Sunday morning. This is a, a kind of old school church built in the 50s. So they had these things instead of your chair, they had something called a pew, okay? Now a pew is a long bench with a cushion. You just cram as many people as you can onto it, okay? That's the way church used to be set up, all right? So he, the youth group, which is middle and high school students, we were in the front two pews. They put us all there so that all the parents could watch out and make sure we're not fooling around with stuff, right? And then you had everybody else. Well, the pastor's preaching his sermon. It's like 11.30. And all of a sudden, some dude in like the way back pew stands up and shouts at the pastor. I resent that remark. Now, listen, y'all. This was not a church like ours where you like talk back and amen and yada, yada. Nobody said nothing during the pastor's sermon. It was a frozen chosen situation, right? You just sit there waiting for it to be done. You know what I mean? So not a, anybody talking is crazy. But then a guy yelling, I resent that remark. Ironically, the pastor was reading a passage of scripture, but that's for another time. Um, so here's what happens next. My man gets up, walks down the aisle, shouting the whole time, gets up on stage and starts like right here, yelling at the pastor. What is happening, right? Well, then two deacons who were in what's called a choir loft, okay? This exists behind the stage and it's where the choir sat in robes, okay? Above them was the Jordan River where people got baptized, all right? You just, that's just what it was. Every church in the 1950s built the exact same, okay? That's, that was the setup, all right? Um, so anyways, two deacons come down. They start to remove this guy. As they do, some people in the pews stand up and start singing Onward Christian Soldier. I am at this time, I mean, we are, I'm 14. This is a very confusing experience that I'm having. And there were no phones to record it. You know what I mean? This is the, what a miss. And um, so anyways, they escort this guy, the two deacons in their choir robes out of loft, they escort him out, right? And then half the church stands up and walks out with this guy in support of him, including half of the students who had to go because their parents were like, come on, we're going, you know, it's off they, off they go. And the church split right there Sunday morning at 11.30. Y'all, that's kind of a crazy story, mine is, but I'll tell you what, uh, the, afterwards that the pastor actually got fired by the group that, you know, did the whole march out and everything. And my family left that church and I just got very cautious about church after that. Um, you know, the way I would say is like, I wanted to keep church and maybe even God at a distance because I didn't want to get close enough that I could get hurt again. Because I saw what it did to my family. So I saw the walls that it put up with my family, with the church that they had invested so much into. And my point in that is for some of y'all, church hurt is personal and it's real. And I want to acknowledge that. Maybe you got hurt by a previous church experience and you brought that in and you carry that. Maybe it's something really heavy like racism. You're a minority here in a majority church and you're waiting for the other shoe to drop here like I did there. Maybe you're a woman who was treated poorly in a boys club church and you're waiting for the shoe to drop here and you're bringing that in and Maybe some of you in your church is kind of more like mine where conflict and greed and the things that are supposed to be out there made their way and started running the show in here. And it hurt. Others of you, 
You've heard stories of misconduct or abuse by church leaders. Maybe that's your story. Maybe it's not a church leader that abused you, but somebody did who called themselves a Christian. And how in the world are you supposed to trust Jesus when those who claim him hurt you like they did? My point, y'all, is this is an expansive and personal subject. So I want to offer us hope because I believe that this problem, if we'll listen to Jesus, is a wonderful opportunity for God to bring healing and I believe an outpouring of the gospel in a world so desperately in need of it. But I just recognize how sensitive it might be. Uh, if I was talking about yesterday recording, I was like, man, about five minutes into the sermon, people are going to have some feelings, okay? Uh, so if that's you, just know, I, I know, all right? And I've been there. Cards on the table now. Man, now I believe God's church carries the greatest hope for the world. The greatest, I believe it is the bride of Christ. But I'm not, this sermon does not end in any license for us to talk bad or trash the church. It's the bride of Christ. And it carries the hope of the world. And I want to show you how this very real objection can be the door that you walk through to discover the beauty and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's our outline for the next 25 minutes. We're going to watch Jesus address the religious hypocrites of his day, because that's what makes church hurt like so painful, right? It's the hypocrisy. Like they ain't supposed to do that. They're supposed to live differently, right? They're supposed to love like Jesus loves and they don't. So we'll spend most of our time seeing that. Then I'm going to give us some working categories for church hurt, for church pain to kind of help us process, because we're going to be in community groups, having discussions about this. And I feel like we need some handles for that. And then lastly, I want to propose a way forward for us, okay? Again, I know it's, this may not be you. You may have come and you're like, that's not me, man. Uh, I don't really have this hurt. I just remind you, for some, it is, and it's really big. And I'm telling you, if it's not you, it's equipping you for the conversation the Lord might have in store for you this week. All right, so let's start with Jesus addressing the religious hypocrites. To do that, I'm going to go over to a familiar parable in Luke chapter 10. So we're going to follow along in your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, man, we would love to give you a Bible, okay? It'd be our joy to give you a Bible, and you can get one as you leave today at our Next Steps area. Be happy to give you one. Um, If you've got one, Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 30. Now, I'm going to come back and grab the like five verses before that, but we're going to start in verse 30. You'll see why as we go, okay? All right, verse 30, Luke chapter 10. Y'all ready? All right, let's do it. So far, the front right of Mercy Northeast is ready, and my right is ready. So I'm going to preach here now. I'm, I'm trusting the rest of y'all getting the game. Here we go. Verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. All right, verse 31. A priest. Now, you see priest, you need to think that's the pastors of the day, okay? A priest happened to be going down that road. Now remember, this is a hypothetical, it's an illustration, right? It didn't actually happen. Jesus is using it to teach a point. So every word matters in here, okay? When he saw him, what did the priest do? He passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, now when you see Levite, you need to think like um, the, they're a temple worker. So maybe it's a church staff person. Maybe it's a seminary professor or something like that. One who is meant to lead and model the ways of God. A Levite, in the same way, when he arrived at the place and saw him, what did he do? Pass by on the other side. 
the two people who supposedly know the ways of God better than any others in the community pass by on the other side. What is Jesus doing in this parable? He's pointing out the hypocrisy of religious people, right? He doesn't say anything else about them other than who they are, priest, Levite, and what they did went on the other side. They passed by on the other side. Their neglect of the wounded man is what Jesus is highlighting. It's that, remember, parables are making one clear point. It's an illustration to make a point. He's saying, these are the ones who know what God says, but they don't do it. They looked apart. They talked apart. They know all the churchy phrases. But when it comes down to it, they don't live the part. Because the last thing they want to do is get their hands dirty. So they pass by. They got places to be. I was thinking about this even like, this is a priest and Levi. They're religious workers. There's a good chance they're passing by to what? To go serve God somewhere. And they don't have time to do what God tells them to do because they got to go and serve God. No time for the hurting. And then Jesus brings this pretty surprising twist. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. Okay. This is the twist. Remember, he's talking to Jewish religious leaders. They hated Samaritans. These are dirty Gentiles that didn't know God, okay? And that is who the hero of the story is going to be. Watch this. A Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Okay. This is a little fun aside. The word for compassion here is the Greek word splagma. Doesn't that just sound good, right? This is a good word, right? So everybody, all three campuses, on the count three, I didn't plan this, but I feel like we just need to say this Greek word splagma. One, two, three splagma. Yes. You got to feel like your gut has to get involved to say that word. Right. And that's actually part of the nature of the word is that it's not just like casual compassion. It's from way down deep. It's this deep from the gut compassion. He has compassion and you'll start to see evidence of that and how compassionate he is. Look, he went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal. He kept going. Look, he could have just Bandage the wounds, wouldn't that, that alone would have been a good ending of the parable. But he keeps going. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then he keeps going. The next day he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And then he keeps going. It's like there's no end to this guy's splagma, to his compassion. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. It's like there's no end to this foreigner's compassion. Verse 36 now he goes and he looks at the lawyer with everybody else listening. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to a man, to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed him, showed mercy to him. He said he was forced to say it. Right, what else could you say? Right? Well, it's, it's the one who showed mercy. It's the Samaritan. That's the good guy. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Now, this is the parable that at this point should make us, if we're honest Christians, a little uncomfortable. Because if you ever found yourself saying, man, it seems like that person who isn't a Christian is more kind and loving than some of the Christians I know. That's what Jesus is saying happened here. The Samaritan from a different religion was acting more in line with God's ways than the ones that supposedly know all about God's ways. I think we Christians have to be humble enough, y'all, to just acknowledge that this happens to us sometimes. We sin, we get it wrong. 
And man, the whole, you'll see in a little bit with this parable as we keep unpacking it, the whole problem here is that this guy wasn't ready to admit that he was flawed and he gets things wrong. We got to be able to humble ourselves and admit that we're wrong sometimes. And we can't go and look down on a kind act committed by, done by a non-Christian. But see, part of Jesus' whole point is that the beaten man should have never needed the Samaritan because God's people, especially the leaders of God's people, should have stepped in and should have shown mercy, but they didn't. There's an incongruency with what they say and what they do. Jesus is calling out the hypocrites. Here's why I'm bringing this to you today on this topic. Because if you feel like it's not right, if you feel like sometimes the church doesn't line up with Jesus, you're not alone. That's what I want you to see here. In fact, it was uh, so many that resonate with what Mahatma Gandhi said years ago, he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And what I want to tell you is long before Gandhi ever said that, Jesus was saying that. He feels that. He weeps and gets angry over his people when they misrepresent him. You see it all over his ministry. He overturns tables in the temple. He rebukes his disciples repeatedly for lack of faith, for selfishness, for pride, for power hunger. He rebukes his boy Peter so hard that he calls him Satan at one point, right? One, another one betrays him. Others abandon him. It was the religious leaders that beat him, nailed him to a cross and killed him. Here's my point. If you feel like the church has let you down, has disappointed you in some way, I want you to see Jesus has been there. He shares the experience. Listen, the church let Jesus down long before it let you down. And we're talking, to, what we're going to talk in a second, what we're going to come around to is the astounding love of Christ for this very group of people who betrayed him. But for now, I just want you to see the Jesus of scripture. He gets it. Here's what happens though. Oftentimes a leap happens from here. It's a leap that happens in our head and in our heart that I think is a lie from the enemy. I think the enemy comes in right at that time of disappointment and tells us a lie. It's a very common one. And it is at the roots of the, what's currently called the deconstruction movement. Okay. It's the leap from disappointment to disbelief. Because the church let me down, the message it preaches must not be true. Doesn't the hypocrisy of Christians invalidate the claims of Christianity? So here's how I want to respond to that. I want to talk to your head and then I want to talk to your heart. See, when I talk to your head, the question you're really asking is, doesn't the hypocrisy of any belief system invalidate the truth claims of that system? Because injustice has commit, been committed by people who ascribe to y'all to every kind of worldview, especially the non-religious worldviews. You think of the 20th century, you think of communist China and Cambodia and the horrible atrocities committed there. You think back to the roots of that, and it goes all the way back to the French Revolution in the 18th century. Or is this, there was an atheistic revolution, all centered around we're going to replace religion with reason. It was incredibly bloody. In fact, in one of the like morbid but ironic moments of that revolution, 1793, Madame Roland, she's being led to the guillotine on these trumped up charges, and she bows down to the statue that represents liberty, and she says, oh, Lady Liberty, what horrors have been committed in your name? Um, there's a fantastic, I've been reading a number of books, prepare for the series. One of them that's a oldie, a little bit oldie, but goodie on this is called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. He says, look, terrible things, yes, have been done in the name of Christianity and 
They must be addressed and redressed, but societies that rid themselves of religion have been just as oppressive as those that have been steeped in religion. So here's what he says. He goes, we can only conclude that there is some violent impulse deeply rooted in the human heart that expresses itself regardless of what the beliefs of a particular society might be. Y'all, here's what I'm trying to get you to. The hypocritical practice of a people who ascribe to a belief system does not invalidate that belief system. Just because you've been disappointed doesn't mean you must stop believing. Um, think this way. We'll lighten the mood a bit. One of the greatest musical composers of all time is Johann Sebastian Bach, right? Uh, everybody that knows music is going to agree with that. He's one of the composers of the Ave Maria. I mean, a beautiful piece of work, right? Masterful. Now, if I were to walk over, where's the keyboard? Did somebody take the keyboard and leave? Let's say they kept the keyboard up here. I don't know what happened. This is amazing. But let's say there's a keyboard right over here as there was when we were singing together. If I walk over there and I say, guys, I got a treat for you. Mid-sermon, I'm going to play you a little piece from Johann Sebastian Bach called the Ave Maria. And I go over there and I start going to work. Your heart and soul are not going to be lifted up to the heavens, okay? It is going to be tragic. You're going to feel like, feel bad for me. That's how bad you're going to feel. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry for him. This is so terrible. I don't know what to say right now, right? That's what's going to happen if I were to do that. But your disappointment in my performance of Bach does not invalidate the beauty of Bach. You still believe in Bach, right? Likewise, I know this is really hard, depending on your story, but the bad practice of Christianity by some Christians does not invalidate the claims of Christianity. In other words, brief summary, disappointment does not necessitate disbelief. That's me talking to, your, to, to the reason, logic side of this conversation. Now let me talk to your heart. The church hurt problem, whether a big moment in history or a personal moment in your history, it almost always goes back to somebody in a place of power as it relates to you, choosing pride or selfishness over Christ-like love. My old pastor years ago showed me this. It was a breakthrough for me, so I hope it helps you. I want to look at how Jesus confronts both pride and selfishness in this encounter. The whole thing is a rebuke of pride and selfishness. It's the rebuke of the pride and selfishness of the guy who asks the question. So let's go back up to verse 25 and see why Jesus told the parable to begin with. He says, then an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a strange question, right? To like walk up and ask. So what's going on here? Where's this happening? The lawyer is pretty clever. None of these guys like Jesus. They're trying to set a trap for Jesus, where he will admit publicly that he's God, they can accuse him of blasphemy, put him to death. Jesus sees through it, of course. So verse 26, he says, okay, well, lawyer, what's written in the law? He asks him, how do you read it? It's a great flip back on him, right? Well, what does the law say, lawyer? 27, the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer is a very sharp guy. There's like 600 laws. So when Jesus says, what the law say? He could start. 600 would be here all day. Nope. Instead, what he does, he quotes Moses, who summarized the law in 
these two commands right here. But that also plays perfectly into Jesus's hands. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do that, and you will live. Now, at that moment, right there in that conversation with the audience watching everything, what's the self-aware response the lawyer should have given? Well, that's impossible, Jesus, because I haven't loved God with my all. I haven't loved God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, all my strength. I haven't loved my neighbor with my all. I haven't done that. I need help. If, if, God, if the standard is giving God my all, I've fallen way short. That should be the lawyer and that should be every one of us. When Jesus says, do this and you'll live, our response is, yeah, but what if I haven't? That's, that should be the response. But what if, what if I haven't done that? What hope, for there, what hope for me is there? I'm just at the mercy of God. Lord, help a sinner like me. That should be the response of the lawyer and of us, but it's not. The lawyer's pride takes him in a different direction. Look at verse 29. But wanting to justify himself. Wanting to justify himself, he asked, my, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See what he's doing there? He's feeling the pressure of Jesus' question against the reality of his life, but he's in a group of people. He don't want to be shown up, don't want to back down. So he throws up this smoke screen, hoping he can get an answer that'll get him off the hook. Tell me who to be nice to. Just tell me what I need to do, how I need to perform in order to earn acceptance and earn eternal life. Justify myself so I can go pure on my hands and get back to doing what I want to do. And in response, he tells, Jesus tells this parable. What he's trying to get them to see is that the gospel should kill the pride and selfishness that religion has such a tendency to foster in our hearts. Jesus taught us, none of us have followed the law. None of us have lived like we should. The apostle Paul picks up on it in Romans and Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are in desperate need of help. Y'all, you understand the gospel starts to go to work in your heart when you see yourself not only as the religious leader walking by on the other side, but also as the man dying on the side of the road. You see, our own sin separates us from God and leaves us helpless and bound for death. And many of us even have a wake of destruction of our sin in our own lives. And Christ, the foreigner, comes to us and binds our wounds. His blood is the oil and wine poured out for us. He comes and heals us when we have nothing to offer him. You know, listen to me, the gospel kills our pride and selfishness by showing us our only hope comes from Jesus, not ourselves. Y'all, here's why I'm majoring on this in a sermon on this topic. I'm trying to get you to see the beautiful self-correcting mechanism that God did build in to his church. Yes, the church is full of sinners. And yes, its people and its leaders commit sin. We do so from places of pride and selfishness. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus and his kindness offers hope to the wounded and to the prideful and the selfish. It's remarkable. The, the hope to the wounded is that he has been wounded. He's been wounded. Like you, and he has the power yet to bind all our wounds. In fact, the prophet Isaiah talks about how we are healed by his wounds. 
the healing is spiritual reconciliation to God and then spiritual restoration within ourselves. The gospel announces healing to the hurt. But then to the sinner, the gospel offers the hope of forgiveness. That while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, we've been in Ephesians before this, right? What does Ephesians tell us? While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, oh, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive who were dead. Even though you have sinned against people, even though you, Christian, have misrepresented the name of Jesus, he still extends forgiveness to you. It's remarkable. And when the gospel, that gospel is rightly understood, it transforms our hearts. It starts producing self-sacrificing love. Y'all, that's why the New Testament is so insistent that its follower, the followers of Jesus care for the poor and the vulnerable. James 2, he gets real blown with it. It's like, you claim Jesus, you don't have works. This is a false claim. Faith without works is dead. We talk a good game, but don't sacrificially love those in need. That's a heart problem. What do we do? We go back to the gospel and through dwelling in the gospel, John 15, abide in me, Jesus says, then you will bear much fruit. Then we're transformed. You start to look back and see that while the church has gotten it wrong sometimes, this beautiful thing that the Lord does by changing hearts is that the church has gotten it right many times too throughout history. You think right at the beginning, at the church's beginning, like the church was born into the Roman Empire, which men think about once a week is what we've learned through social media. I don't know if you are caught up. Just learned this this week, okay? We're born into the, the church is born into the Roman Empire. Here's what's happening in the Roman Empire. Roman Empire is trying to stamp out Christianity quick, but there's this problem that keeps happening. The Christians keep caring for all the poor and hurting in the empire. Example, Emperor Julian himself writes this note about how these Christians keep going on baby runs in the middle of the night. You know what that was? The Roman pagan families would have a child that they didn't want, and so they would just leave the child on the doorstep for dead. And the Christians would come along, these followers, the Galileans is what he called them, the followers of Jesus would come along and they would adopt these children. Why? Because they who were made in the image of God experienced adoption from God the Father when they didn't deserve it. So the natural outworking of that into their community is to go and adopt others made in the image of God. It's the love of God on display. And they wanted to stamp it out, but they couldn't even explain it or understand it. That is God's love going to work. The Christian, the church came in. Church came in. You look at the slave trade and realize that it was the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. It was led by Christians who sacrificed their fortunes and their, and their whole lives precisely because of the convictions of their faith. It wasn't the gospel that caused the problem. The cause was, we talked about earlier, the violence deeply seated in every human heart. But it was the gospel that brought the end to it. It made a man like John Newton, who was a slave trader, but then comes to faith, go flip much like the apostle Paul did, and now seek to end the slave trade and pen the song Amazing Grace because it saved a wretch like him. Even a wretch like him who was involved in that found redemption because of the self-correcting mechanism that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Y'all, my point is hypocrites are everywhere. Everyone in this room, including me, is a hypocrite. Welcome to church. You're always room for one more hypocrite, okay? And the gospel is the only hope for hypocrites. 
When the gospel of God's forgiveness is rightly understood, it produces repentance and hypocrites. And then if we'll do that work of taking it to the Lord, then it starts to produce a self-sacrificing love from a humble, thankful people. This is the call to us, church. This is, this is our call. When our community looks at Mercy Church, gets to know the Mercy family, what do they see? What do they experience? Do they see proud, selfish people hoping to justify themselves while staying a safe distance from the problems of its community? Or do they see, do they see sinners saved by grace, humble and self-sacrificing to whatever need comes across them? That's Jesus' response to the hypocrites of his day. Now, let me, let me take a, a little bit of a turn here in our sermon and talk about the different, I told you the second and third thing we do. Second thing we're going to do is talk about different kinds of church hurt. Um, I'll also tell whoever's running the clock in the back that the clock is counting up, not down. So that's just telling me what kind of record I'm setting. So we're going to keep going. It's going to be great. Um, but look, we're talking about different kinds, different kinds of church pain because in our community groups this week, we're going to talk about this stuff. Conversations are going to get real personal and intense. And I'm going to say different kinds. I'll go ahead and tell you, um, these are new with me this week, okay? The categories that I'm about to tell you. It comes from thinking about it for 18 years in ministry and eight as your lead pastor since we started this church, uh, some different categories of church hurt or pain that I see, but I'll offer them to you a little bit in experimental form, okay? So give me some grace with that. If you stick around, you plug in here at Mercy, you're gonna experience one to three kinds of pain. And I gotta be honest about that. In a group of centers, it's bound to happen. But when we don't distinguish between the types of pain, we lump them all into like the most severe of categories. And I don't think that's helpful. So three kinds of pain you're probably going to experience. The pain of discipleship, the pain of an offense, and the pain of injustice. First, you're going to experience the pain of discipleship. Sometimes, y'all, discipleship is painful. And that is good pain. Sometimes what you think someone is hurting you, what they're actually doing is practicing Proverbs 27, 6. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. It's the kisses of an enemy that are excessive. And because there's a lot in our day of, I don't want to ever tell you anything that you're doing wrong. You do you and whatever you do, think, feel is all good all the time. And a lot of that soft talk comes into the church and we never talk about sin and we want you to feel warm and fuzzy. There's versions of that Christianity out there. It can hurt when a friend or a pastor or an elder corrects you for the first time. That's not church hurt though. That's God's grace. Can it, be, can that be abused? Yes. Talk about it in a minute. So how do you, how do you figure that out? How do you process that? Well, here's what you do. You measure what was said to you by God's word. Is your brother or sister in Christ lovingly calling you away from sin? Are they calling you up in holiness? That might be painful, but it's not injustice. It's loving. As iron sharpens iron, scripture says, so one man sharpens another. Listen, I'm not a blacksmith. I don't do a lot of iron sharpening iron, okay? I do try to keep my kitchen knife relatively sharp, all right? We got this stick. I set it. I watched a YouTube video. It said to set it like this. And you take the knife and you start going back and forth like this. I mean, it's abrasive. Like there's all this sound happening over there. It's not pleasant. You know what I mean? Iron, sharpening iron is not meant to be this peaceful, ho-hum experience. It's painful, but it's good. 
So if you want to grow as a follower of Jesus, you should expect to be sharpened by those who love Jesus and love you. Y'all, listen, I've just had it happen a lot. I still have it regularly as your pastor. This is why I'm in a community group. This is why I have close friends who, and your fellow elders are some of those um, and others who speak this into my life. It's painful. I do not like them when they're doing it. I'm like, this is great, man. I really love this. No, I don't but I'm a better man for it. I'm growing slowly but surely into the image of Jesus through it. I have to thank God for that wounding. That's the first kind of pain. Second kind, you're gonna experience offense. This is probably the broadest category. Give me some grace here as I try and articulate this. Somebody's gonna sin against you if you're in the church and they're gonna do so in a way that it may not cause you like a whole lot of long-term harm. I think when you hear the third category, it all makes sense of this, but it will hurt your feelings. They broke your trust. They let you down. They said something harmful. They didn't show up for you. Maybe it's that your church went a different direction than you believe that it should. That stuff's painful and you can be wounded by it. Let's not pretend like if we're going to be a, uh, God calls the church a family, that kind of stuff happens in a family. Here's what I'll say. The amount of lasting pain and offense will cause you is directly related to the speed at which you deal with it God's way. God says, give it to him and then go to that person and do so fast. Do it before the sun even sets. Because if you don't, what happens? You know it, I know we've all done it. Your sinful heart will start crafting a narrative about that brother or that sister that it's not right, true, or fair. But we do it. Here's here's how it starts with me. Oh, I know what she was thinking. You ever had that? Oh, I know what he was doing. I know, I know what he was really up to there. No, you don't. You do not know that. And I do not know that. We start crafting that narrative and the enemy loves that moment. Man, that is a wide open door to the enemy to come in and reap all kinds of destruction in your life and in God's church. Many who stay on the fringes do so because they let that moment happen right there. I'm telling you, and I say fringes, I mean on the fringes of church. Don't dive in you're worried about that right there. I'm telling you on the other side of conflict is an incredible opportunity for the rich relationships you were created for. So I want to tell you, this would be a whole nother sermon. No idea how much time I have left in this one. Okay. So go to Matthew 18. I want you to go to Matthew 18 and I want you to read up on how to go and deal with an offense. And right after Jesus gives that instruction, he shows the parable of the unforgiving servant. I want you to see and hear Christ's warning if we don't. Let's be quick to forgive. Y'all, we are, we call this church Mercy Church because once we are not God's people, but now we are God's people because once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We who have received mercy, all we do is extend that to others. Lastly, you may experience the third kind of pain, injustice. Injustice is usually when someone uses their power in a way that intentionally brings you harm. It's evil. It might be psychological, physical, or emotional harm. Uh, Us as elders, we pray against this all the time. And as elders, we are commissioned by God to guard against it. We're to protect the sheep and shoot the wolves. We're on guard against it, but even still, y'all, I just, I can't guarantee it won't happen. I hate that. I mean, really, as your pastor, I want to guarantee that that will happen. We are praying we are looking, watching as we're trying. Can't guarantee it won't happen. I can only tell you the God of justice 
offers healing grace more powerful than anything the enemy will bring at you. I can tell you, Jesus says, come to him because he is gentle and lowly of heart. Cast your cares on him because he knows the pain of abandonment, betrayal, hurt, and he has the power to pick you up and carry you through it. And he promises one day it will be no more. There's one point where I started thinking, man, I've been quoting Revelation too often um, in my sermons. And what we talked, me and Courtney talked yesterday, was like, nope, we should probably talk about it about every Sunday. That one day, there's coming a day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more hurt. Like, God has the power, whatever it is that you've been through, and I'm not trivializing it an ounce. In fact, that would cheapen God's grace to do so. He just says that one day it will be no more. So don't let disappointment lead to disbelief because one day it's gonna be no more. You stick with him and he will carry you all the way through. Let's talk about a way forward. The way forward for us is not pulling back, but actually drawing closer to the church. Some of you might be thinking, all right, I'll say yes to Jesus, but no to his church. I think a large percentage of people fall into this camp. You're not gonna go all in on church because you wanna protect yourself like I did for a while. So you camp out on the fringe where it's safe. You attend worship once, twice a month, and you are ready to bail at the first sign anything gets messy. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor in Nazi Germany, he himself is not a Nazi, but he pastored a you know, kind of underground church during that time. He had a wonderful way of talking about this, talking about spiritual growth. He said, growing dissatisfied with sin in the church, that's good. He said, Jesus was also dissatisfied, good for you. That's only the first third of your growth. The second third of your growth is growing just as dissatisfied or even more so with the sin in yourself. Not just in the church, but in yourself. He said, then the final leg of that growth is coming into the church as Jesus meant for you to, which is a sinner saved only by the grace of God, ready to extend that same grace to other sinners. So y'all, we are just bringers of grace to one another. Y'all, the church is called the bride of Christ in scripture. Like I said, this is not a sermon designed to take a swing at the church. Absolutely not. Christ died for the church. Christ loves the church. Christ exalts the church, lifts it high as his bride. You don't get to be close to Jesus and reject his bride or neglect his bride or stay a safe distance away from his bride, but close to him. You try that with me and my bride. See how close we get. We are going to be very close because if you're going to be friends with me, you're going to be friends with my bride. Jesus gave his life for his bride. And the idea you would call yourself a Christian and neglect what he treasures more than anything is just insincere. So instead of pulling back, let's draw near. How else do you think the church is going to get better? Not by neglecting, it's by engaging. And when you get near, the closer you get, the more you see well, a bunch of sinners. You're going to build some friendships, though. You're going to serve others as you were created to with the gifts God has given you. You're going to stop, talk, you stop talking about the church as that church and instead as our church or my church. You're going to get close to fellow sinners and experience the fellowship God built for you. The only hope we have, y'all, is if we, the church, humble ourselves, stay close. Because as we do that, we're going to, as we get close to one another, we're going to experience all that hurt, which will force us one of two ways, pride and selfishness, or back to the foot of the cross.
to dwell with Christ and live together as a bunch of sinners who have received mercy. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the hope that the gospel offers us. I want to pray for those that have experienced some real injustice. Only you can bring hope. Only you can bring healing. I pray that this is just the beginning. But Lord, would your spirit, would you comfort now? And would if, even if it's just a seed, give a seed of hope. All three of our campuses, as we're in this posture of prayer, in a moment, our teams are going to come and they're going to lead us. But I want to let you now just respond. Respond to God. One of the things I always think as I prep sermons for you is, what does God want you to know and what does he want you to do? What's he tapping on your heart for you to believe right now? For you to receive from him? And what next step might he be calling you to? Maybe it's, man, I need to go and talk to this person because I've been carrying an offense and it doesn't need to fester any longer. Maybe it's I need to go and repent. I need to do it quickly for something I've done. Didn't even realize it, but now I do. Maybe it's I need to take a next step and go all in on the church and I've been holding it at a distance. Maybe you're not a Christian. You need to receive the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And hopefully today you've seen sometimes you need to look past where we, God's people, sinners, mess up and look at Jesus who says you can be forgiven of all your sin. He died on the cross in your place. You were meant for it. Your sin and mine deserve death. He went to the cross in your place. He rose again from the grave, giving you eternal life. That's the way to eternal life. You need to receive that today. God, you just tell him, God, I believe I'm a sinner. I need saving. I believe Christ died for me and I receive his forgiveness. Lord, we give all of our responses to you. We love you. We need you. We are hopeless without you, but full of hope with you. You have entrusted the hope of the world, the announcement of your great saving love. You've entrusted that to us. Would we live that? Spirit, help us, refine us. We live that with one another. We would spill over into our community. We pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Amen.